judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. 
Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Calvary. Hope you're enjoying your uh, spring weather here. This was a little bit of a rough weekend. You can see we got a lot of rain. Had some damage on the side there. You tear off the roof right before the rains come. It's not always the best thing to do, you know, but we got to get it done, and we'll survive it. We got some nice sunshine this morning. So, But we continue on today in our Lenten series, Lent to Life. And uh, as we introduced it, I, I made this point, but I want to I make it again, that Lent or the Lenten posture, is not a goal in and of itself. We don't, uh, we don't practice Lent just to practice Lent. The goal or the, 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 the end towards which Lent is pointing is Easter and life. So we've been practicing uh, Lenten posture throughout the week with a view to coming together to celebrate the Easter blessing of Sunday morning. And that's the rhythm of Lent as we move towards the great uh, Easter with the capital E. So each uh, Sunday through Lent, we're focusing then on the, the pairing, these gospel pairings uh, that uh, we engage in that bring about the Easter blessing. So repentance to repair, fasting to feasting, and this week we're looking at the movement from humility to unity. Because you can't get to repair without repentance, you can't get to feasting without fasting, and you can't get to unity without humility. So the Easter goal of the sermon today is unity, and the Lenten posture that's going to get us towards unity is humility. So as we approach these twin themes of unity and humility, I want us to be thinking in a number of different contexts. In Romans 14 and then on into the beginning of 15, Paul has in mind primarily the unity of the local assembly, of the congregation, and that will be the primary focus of the sermon this morning, because that's the primary focus of the text, but anytime believers have to come together, there where unity is required, there has to be humility to make the unity possible. So maybe uh, the Lord is going to have some application for you this morning that moves beyond our Sunday morning experience, but maybe it's related to your marriage, the unity of your marriage, or the unity of your family, or the unity of your friend group, or whatever it might be. So as the Holy Spirit directs, uh, you can apply this in whatever way is best for your situation. Here's how the sermon's going to go this morning. This is a long 
uh, passage of Scripture, and so we're not going to be able to touch on every single verse uh, as we move through. So we're going to focus, um, or we're going to kind of pick out the main themes of Romans 14 and then on into 15 and uh, hit kind of the highlights about how hum- humility leads to unity. And then we're going to pause, as we've been doing the past number of Sundays, and we're going to uh, worship the Lord, celebrate uh, the unity that He has provided for us in Christ, and then we're going to come together at the table and uh, partake of that unity together, unity with each other and with Christ. So, all right, on to Romans 14. In chapter 14, uh, Paul is addressing two issues that were sources of division and quarreling within the church of Rome. Eating meat that had been sold in the meat markets, and also whether or not Gentile Christians had an obligation to observe the Jewish holidays or the the Jewish holy days. Now, these were issues that the broader church was struggling with in Paul's day. So Paul actually tackles this same issue of meat eating in 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 8 through 10, and he addresses the issue of Gentiles and their engagement with the, the Jewish holiday and holy days in Colossians. And so these are broader issues in the church, not just located in the church of Rome. And these are not divisive issues for us today. We're not having debates about whether or not we should be uh, eating meat that had been sold in the meat markets or whether we should be observing Jewish holidays. So without some context, it could be hard to, to make sense of what's going on here in Romans 14. And Paul is speaking into a topic that everyone already knows about as a contentious issue. So he doesn't have to explain a lot, but since we're coming in kind of fresh, it helps to piece together some, uh, some knowledge of the Greco-Roman world and how that uh, world handled uh, their pagan sacrifices in the temple and the meat market, also pulling from 1 Corinthians 10 and what Paul is saying in other passages. So I'm going to pull together uh, some of the issues at play to help us make sense of this. So first, the meat-eating issue. In Paul's day, nearly all the available meat that one could eat in a major city, you couldn't just go down to Pete's, you know, over to Jewel, right? If you wanted meat and you lived in Rome, you had to go to the meat market, right? So All meat came from the meat markets. And where did the meat get their meat? Where did the meat markets get their meat? This is the rub. The meat markets got their meat from the pagan temples. Now, we often think about ancient sacrifices as practice where the worshiper would bring their animal to their god or goddess, and they would present it to their god or goddess at the temple, and the whole animal would be consumed in honor and worship to the pagan god. But in truth, in the ancient pagan sacrificial systems, the the worshiper would typically offer only a portion of the animal to to the god, to the temple, and they would keep the rest for themselves, and they would either feast on the portion that remained, which, is, which was by and large the, the majority of what remained, or they would take it and they would sell it in the meat market. So if you had a, uh, some livestock that you were wanting to sell in the meat market, you would bring it to the temple and you would offer a little bit uh, to the temple, to the gods, and then you would take the rest and you would sell it in the meat market. And part of the reason you would bring it to the temples is because this is where all the butchers worked. So if you needed your animal uh, taken to a butcher, you would take it to the temples because this is where the butchers plied their trade. So whether or not you were all that interested in making an offering to the God, this is where you had to go typically to get your meat butchered. And the, the, the fee for the butchering was the portion that you would leave to the gods in worship. 
right? So really the, the engagement with the temples was minimal for many people. It was just the way that you got your meat processed so you could then take it to the meat market and sell it. But what that meant was that if you wanted to buy meat, you had to get it from the meat market and it had come, very likely it had come from the temple. So as a consequence, some of the Christians completely rejected the meat from the meat markets altogether. And they limited themselves to just the vegetables. In other words, they were eating only the food that hadn't come from the meat markets. So when Paul is talking about eating meat versus eating vegetables, he doesn't have in mind our contemporary debate about vegetarianism versus you know, carnivores, right? It's not, it's not a health issue for him. It's an issue related to idolatry and practice. So that was the meat-eating issue. The other issue of debate in that day and age was the extent to which Gentile Christians had to observe the Jewish holy days. So Christianity emerges out of Judaism, and nearly all of the first Christians were Jews, were, were devout, righteous, Torah-observing Jews. And so uh, when a righteous, Torah-observing Jew would convert to Christianity, it wasn't conceived of as switching religions. Rather, Jesus was the fulfillment of Judaism, and so the Torah-observing Jew would just continue in the observance of Judaism, but now seeing that all of it was pointing towards Jesus. And so the, the earliest Christians continued to be Torah-observing Jews. But then as the Gentiles began to convert, some of the Gentiles began to say, oh, we should keep the the Jewish holy days and the Jewish holidays as well because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Jewish covenantal practices and so we're going to keep the whole, the whole nine yards. But other Christians said, well, no, Jesus is the flower of the Jewish stem and plant and, and we've been given the flower and so we don't need to go back and, and we don't need to keep all of the practices of the stem and the roots. So the weaker brother or sister in this context then was the one who felt constrained by his or her conscience regarding these practices. Paul's going to use this expression. We can see it here in verse 14.1. One who is weak in faith. He uses in 15.1 the, the opposite. He talks about one who is strong. So he's using this language of strong and weak to, to denote the two sides of these two issues. And he's saying strong and weak because the strong is the brother or sister who has a greater, has a stronger conscience, a greater freedom of conscience regarding these disputable, non-essential practices. The weaker brother, as I said, is the one who feels more constrained in his conscience regarding those practices. So where one's conscience constrains a person to refrain from participating in certain practices, like eating meat that had been sold in the meat market, or where one's conscience obligated one to engage in certain practices, like observing the Jewish holiday and holy days, then one's conscience was weak, meaning one feels an obligation to engage or not engage in certain practices. But whereas one conscience was free, a person would free a person to participate in certain practices like eating from the meat market or releases a person from feeling obligated to, to engage in certain practices like observing the Jewish holidays, then one's conscience was strong, right? So where one's conscience binds or constrains on a particular issue, that's the weak side. Where, one con where one's conscience liberates or frees on a particular issue, that's the strong side. 
Now, throughout this passage, Paul applies this strong and weak dichotomy to both individual practices and also to communal practices. So I want to think through this dichotomy both as individuals as we navigate the world and then also community, which is where we're going to focus a lot of our our pastoral energy this morning. So with respect to individual practices, Paul's main point in Romans 14, beginning of Romans 14, is that we shouldn't pass judgment on other Christians who take a different view on secondary matters. So let me read for us here, starting with like verse 3. It's already been read for us, but, but now that we understand maybe a bit more of the context, in Romans 14, 3, Paul says, let, no one, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person, then here he gets into this issue of days, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. And then he goes on to say uh, in verse 12, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So as it relates to these individual practices, Paul is saying that each person should follow their own conscience, be convinced in their own mind, let others do the same, and to not argue about it, and that in the end, we're all going to give an account to God, and God will be the one that sorts it all out. Now, some might think that Paul is going all live and let live here because he doesn't think that there's actually a right or wrong on these issues, that these are just matters of opinions, like you like chocolate, I like vanilla, you like pistachio. I mean, it's all just a matter of opinion and don't argue about it. And so whether you want to keep the holy days or not, doesn't matter. You're like, all these things are just opinions. And so Paul is just saying there isn't a right or wrong. And our translation here in Romans 14.1, I think it, it gives, unhelpfully, it gives us this impression by translating uh, the Greek term opinion into the, into the English opinion, which implies that there is that there's not really a fixed reference point. But I think this is a regrettable translation because the word that's translated opinion is used more often and I think more accurately uh, as thoughts. So Paul is saying here in 14.1, don't pass judgment on the thoughts of the weak brother. Or as we read the context, we could translate that as, I think, better saying, don't pass judgments on the wrong thoughts of the weaker brother. Because... Paul actually does go on to say in their passage that there is a right or wrong about these two particular disputable matters. The fact is, it was okay to eat the meat from the meat market. Paul says that in 1414. You look over here, he says, I know that and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Then he goes on at length to say in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 that there there is nothing inherently wrong with eating the meat that comes from the meat market. You can do that with a free conscience. And when it comes to the Gentiles celebrating Jewish holy days, he also says it's fine if they want to, but they don't have to. It's not necessary. So Colossians 2.16, Paul talks about whether or not it's necessary to observe the Jewish holy days. So though the issues were disputed in the Church of Rome, Paul knows what the right position is. And in fact, 
The strong know what the right position is. So even though they're disputed, it doesn't mean that there's not a right or wrong. Both, on both of these issues, the strong position is the correct position. It's the right position. So when Paul says live and let live, he's not saying, well, those are disputable issues. No one really knows. So everyone to himself and God will sort it out. He's saying there is a correct position. The strongs have it, but it's not worth quarreling over. He's telling the strong on non-essential matters, stop arguing. If the people want to eat only, if some people want to eat only vegetables and keep Sabbath like a Jew, that's fine. Just let them do it. They don't need to, but they're not sinning and they're not hurting anybody, so let that be between them and God. All right, so that's how we live out disputable matters as it relates to individuals. Everyone kind of live and let live. Even though I know that I'm right, I don't need to impose my rightness upon you. You can sort that out between you and the Lord. But what about when it comes to community and our corporate unity? And this is where I really want to focus our attention because it's not just live and let live anymore when it comes to corporate unity. When it comes to corporate unity, one side has to yield to another side. And you might think, you might think that the weak, Paul would say, should yield to the strong because after all, the strong, Paul has said, are actually correct on this issue. But look what he says in Romans 15, 1. 15.1, Paul says the strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And he uses the term failings because he's just said that the weak are wrong on this position. This is why it's not just a matter of opinions necessarily, but Paul is saying that the strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please themselves. In other words, as the strong and the weak enter into community with each other, the ones with the strong conscience need to let their community practices be constrained by the limitations of the ones with the weaker conscience even when the ones with the strong conscience know that they're in the right. Now, maybe it's good to pause here and try to give a bit of clarity about what constitutes the disputable matters. A lot of times, a lot of sermons on this text get focused on trying to identify what are disputable matters. That's not really the focus, I think, of what Paul is going for, but it's worth saying a few things about, because in the larger context, a disputable matter is a matter that from the perspective of the strong side, and that's important, this is from the perspective of the strong side, has no real relevance to one's spiritual growth or maturity. Now, of course, from the perspective of the weak side, it does have relevance for spiritual growth and maturity. But the strong knows that it doesn't actually have any relevance. So eating meat or not eating meat doesn't have any relevance for spiritual maturity. The strong know that. The weak don't know that, but the strong do. Right, so from the perspective of the strong, a disputable matter is one that has no relevance for spiritual maturity. The strong know that the failing of the weak, the strong know that, um, my notes, forget my notes there. And, why, and that's why all throughout, throughout this passage, Paul is directing his comments, particularly to the strong. He's asking the strong who know better to be the adults in the room. If the weaker brother, who's less mature and doesn't know as much, the weaker brother doesn't want to eat meat or wants to celebrate some Jewish holidays, just leave them be. 
Paul says. Nothing is lost, nothing is gained. Their practice may not be mandated by Christian ethics, but it's not forbidden by Christian ethics either. And so when you come together in community, the strong who know better should yield their Christian freedom and preferences to the weak who don't know better for the sake of community. It's not worth arguing over, Paul is saying. Now, there's more that can be said about disputable matters, but I'm not interested in getting lost in a sermon about disputable matters and is that a disputable matter and is that a disputable matter. And Paul's not really interested in that either because his point in this passage isn't about disputable matters. His point in this passage is about love. For Paul, the most important thing is not solving the debate between meat eaters and non-meat eaters. His most and greatest concern is about love and unity in the body. So look here in chapter 14, go back into verse 15 and following. He says, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, again, he's talking to the strong. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what, what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbringing. The calling of the strong brother and sister is ultimately a calling of love. It's not to insist on their legitimate Christian freedom, but it's, to have it, but it's to have an eye to what is in the best interest of the weaker brother and sister. And Paul calls for this constraining of the strong not to be done begrudgingly, not to be done resentfully, not to be done with bitterness, but to be done in love for the sake of the weaker brother's growth in the Lord. Love, not being right about non-essential matters of Christian practice, is the thing that Paul is most concerned about in this passage. So now let's think a bit about how this might look in our congregation. Typically have disagreements about eating meat from the meat markets or celebrating Jewish holidays. But we do have a variety of opinions in our church community about alcohol, for instance, or about smoking, pipes, cigars, cigarettes. You ever notice in like Christian moral view, like pipes, it's like, oh, Tolkien smoked a pipe. That's so charming. <laughs> cigars are like mobsters smoke cigars and like just sinners smoke cigarettes. You know, like we just, it's like there's like a moral degradation there, right? I don't, I don't know exactly why that is. It's all tobacco, but there you go, right? But in any case, uh, smoking. Uh, watching R-rated movies, for instance, or going to Las Vegas for a vacation. Right? So we all can have different opinions about these sorts of things. We probably have different opinions about it here in this room. I'm sure we do. Now, following Paul's principles with regard to our individual practices on those issues, each of us can do as he or she deems is right between them and the Lord. God is the one to whom we have to give an account. So just make sure whatever you choose on those issues that you're choosing it before the Lord and you're doing it in a, in a clean conscience before the Lord. But when it comes to our community practices, when we all gather together, whether that's on a Sunday morning, whether that's in an ABF, it's a men's retreat, perhaps it's a small group, maybe it's when just some Calvary friends all get together in a social gathering informally, then it becomes a different matter. When it comes to community, the strong need to bear with the limitations 
of the week. So that's why we don't serve alcohol at our Calvary feasts on Sunday afternoons, why we don't show R-rated movies at church events, why we don't do our church link retreat in Vegas. There might be other... <laughs> might be other cost-prohibitive factors involved in that, but... Because there might not be anything inherently wrong with those activities. There are Christians who live in Vegas, right? We have folk, but we have folks in our community who do not feel in good conscience that they can or should engage in those sorts of practices or activities. Now, we don't have an apostle here telling us absolutely for sure which side is right, which side is wrong, and who knows, maybe in this case, the weak are on the right side. The strong position isn't always on the right side. But that's beside the point. Paul's point is that we need to love each other. Everyone in the strong position, when it comes to matters of conscience, they want to be in the strong position. I can drink alcohol, I can watch R-rated movies, I can go to Vegas on vacation. Okay, well, that's well and good, I think Paul would say. But that means that you're the one that has to yield, though, when we gather together for our corporate practice. But it's not fair, you say. Well, who said anything about fair? Bearing the burdens of the weak is what Christianity is all about. Because that's what love is all about. Is your weaker brother or sister drawing closer to the Lord? Then rejoice in Christian love and don't worry about your freedoms and non-essentials. Is your Christian freedom destroying the faith of your brother and sister? Then constrain the use of your freedom so that they can flourish in the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 8, 13, Paul goes so far as to say, talking about this same issue of eating meat, he says, eating meat from the meat markets isn't a problem. But if eating meat ruins the faith of my brother or sister, I will never eat meat again. Because of Paul's deep love for his fellow believers, he would gladly give up non-essentials. He would gladly curtail the use of his Christian freedoms if that meant the flourishing and growth of his fellow believer. So the question for us is, do we love each other more than we love our Christian freedom? Do we love each other enough to be willing to give up our legitimate freedoms for the sake of each other's growth and devotion in the Lord? And I've got to say, that on the whole, I'm really genuinely very proud of us on this point. I think we've done a great job this past year. I think you all have done a great job these past couple years. There's been a lot of disputable matters in 2020 and 2021, especially related to COVID and to mask wearing. And talk about disputable practices. Whole churches during this pandemic have divided over mask wearing. I mean, talk about church or uh, pews versus chairs, right? That used to be the big thing, right? Now it's, that's so 2019. Now it's all about masks or not masks. That's what we divide over. But I'm especially proud of, of those of you in particular who put up with mask wearing for two years, two years, when you didn't think we needed to. You didn't think we needed to wear masks, but you were willing to bear with it for the sake of congregational unity, had an email from a congregant back last year of April last year, almost a year ago, asking about why we were requiring masking. And in his opinion, there was no need for it. 
and was encouraging us to drop the requirement. So I, I wrote back with the following email, just paraphrasing Romans 14. Let me read it to you here now. Let not the one who wears masks despise the one who doesn't. And let not the one who abstains from masking pass judgment on the one who does. Therefore, do not, let us not pass judgment on one another, but decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that there is no need to wear a mask at the worship service. But it is a matter of health for those who think it's such. And if your brother won't come to church because of non-mask wearing, you are no longer acting in love. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of masking or not masking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. By what you choose about masks, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbringing. Do not, for the sake of masks, destroy the work of God. There is no need for mask wearing at church, but it is wrong to make another stumble by what one chooses about masks. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We know that mask wearing is not necessary. However, not all possess this knowledge. Therefore, if wearing a mask at church allows my brother to attend, I will choose to wear a mask for the rest of my life. And he wrote back and he said, that's a good point. <laughs> he said, I agree with you. And then he added this paraphrase from 1 Corinthians 10, which I think is a great addendum. He wrote, so whether you wear a mask or don't, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to anyone or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And all throughout this pandemic, we have asked the strong to bear with the weak. Now, was the strong position the right position? I don't know. As I said, we didn't have an apostle of science to come and determine that for us. But, but that isn't really the main point. Who was right and who was wrong about mask wearing isn't really the main thing. The main thing is what Paul is saying is love. Love for one another is the most important thing. And the fact that we loved one another through two years of disagreement, we didn't all have the same opinion, through two years of disagreement about masks is a testimony to the love of Christ reigning in this church. Paul goes on to say in Romans 5, 15, 2, rather, says, let us seek to please our neighbor for his or her good and not to live to please ourselves. So maybe this is a word for us, corporate unity. It's where Paul's primary focus is and where I've focused a lot of my attention. But maybe this is a word for you related to, to a smaller circle of unity. Maybe you're in, uh, in disagreement or can't sort out the way forward related to a matter of practice with regards to your spouse. Or maybe it's a family member or, or perhaps someone in your small group. Just because you're right doesn't mean you should impose your conscience on another. Live and let live as much as possible. Who are you to pass judgments on non-essential issues? And when it comes to community, when it comes to two or more gathered together in the name of Jesus, having to sort out how they're going to live in community, if you are the strong party, then be willing to surrender your rights in love for the sake of your brother's sister's growth in the Lord. Because regardless of the issue, the main application, the main point, the most important thing 
is love. I want to end with a word here uh, from 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 5 and 6. In verses 15, 5, Paul calls for the Christians to live in harmony with each other. Not just unity. He calls them to live in harmony. Harmony is a unique kind of unity. C major, if I hit C major on this piano and then I hit C major on another piano, they would be in unity with each other, but they wouldn't be in harmony with each other. Harmony is the blending of different notes that come together to make a single pleasing sound. And in music, the unity that comes from harmony is more beautiful and poignant than the unity that comes from sameness. And it's the same way with the unity of the church. We're all called to agree on the essentials. The goodness of God, the deity of Jesus, the resurrection, salvation by grace through faith, apart from works, the call to love, and so forth. But God has not definitively revealed every truth about every aspect of life. And the glory of Christian unity is not that we are all the same instruments playing the same note, or even that we are different instruments playing the same notes, but that we are different instruments playing different notes, but all harmonized together in love. Jesus, Paul says in Romans 15, 6, Paul says that believers are to live in harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. In order for notes to play together in harmony, they need to be harmonizing towards some common standard, some common rule. In the symphony, it's the score or the sheet music. And Jesus is that. He is what we are harmonizing in accord with. Jesus and his humble way of love. He's the writer, the composer, the conductor. Indeed, he himself is the symphony. And he establishes the direction, the arrangement, and all the diversity of the symphony that he is writing and is pointed towards in humility, towards love. When the diverse members of the church are humbly playing according to the score that is Jesus, surrendering their rights for the sake of one another, the strong bearing with the weak, letting the other have his or her different view, his different wrong view even, on secondary non-essential matters. The humility of the church harmonizes all that diversity and makes a beautiful music of God's love. I think in some ways, maybe the reason that God doesn't sort out all the different differences of opinion, why he doesn't spell out everything exactly, is because it gives us an opportunity to harmonize and love with each other. Because if we all agreed, we'd just all be the same instruments playing the same notes in unity. But you can't get, you can't get harmony when you're all playing the same notes. But when we're all playing towards the same reality, different notes, different instruments, different perspectives, but we're doing it all in love, it harmonizes into a beautiful symphony that Jesus is writing. The symphony of love that Jesus is writing is not every man for himself. It's every man and woman and child for the sake of the other, each humbly submitting for the greater unity of love. So we love each other, not perfectly, I know, 
but we really do love each other. And that's been demonstrated these last few years when so many churches experience such division and such strife and such debates. We have granted each other the diversity of each other's wrong opinions. And we have loved each other in spite of it all. And we have asked the strong to bear with the weak humbly. We have done it in a way that has pointed us all towards the love of Christ. So let's keep humbling ourselves for the sake of our corporate unity in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us Jesus. And in his humble way, he has taught us the path to unity that through deference and love for each other, we harmonize in such a way that we bring glory to Christ. So God, I pray that you would cause us to continue to love each other, to not get overly concerned about trying to figure out who's right or wrong and all the secondary non-essential issues, but that the biggest cry of our heart, the biggest desire of our heart would be to extend the love to one another. Give us grace for that, Lord, we pray. Thank you that you have loved us in that way. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.